uh, technology and AI specifically will be a wonderful catalyst for change. I think it's going to be a big, big part of healthcare going forward. There's no way to avoid it. AI can help us figure out what it means. What does it say? What can it help us predict? You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at the range of subjects that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics, we sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Lori Esposito-Murray, President of the Committee for Economic Development, the Public Policy Center of the Conference Board. In today's conversation, we will discuss leadership in challenging times, where we feature the outstanding business leaders who are recipients of CED's Distinguished Leadership Awards for Corporate Citizenship and Business Stewardship. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with our 2023 honoree, Michael Dowling, President and CEO of Northwell Health, the largest healthcare provider and private employer in New York State, caring for more than 2 million people. Michael has been CEO for the past two decades, and his compassionate, inspirational leadership has been invaluable to Northwell's innovative expansion and its prominence. He leads a clinical, academic, and research enterprise with a workforce of more than 85,000 and an annual revenue of $16.5 billion. In 2020, Michael successfully navigated the health system in New York, which was the first COVID epicenter in the U.S. And then Northwell took care of more patients than any other healthcare system in the United States who were suffering from COVID. And he took care of the frontline heroes. Central to Michael's leadership is the core value that Northwell's number one priority must be protecting the physical and emotional health of the Northwell staff. He is one of healthcare's most influential voices, taking a stand on societal issues such as gun violence and immigration. He believes that providing hope for the future generations is all of our responsibilities. These are shared visions with the Committee for Economic Development, the core of CD's mission, and the purpose of the Distinguished Leadership Awards. So welcome, Michael. Pleased to really have you join us today. Uh, thank you, Laura. It's a real privilege and a pleasure. Uh, thank you again. It's just great to be on. I appreciate it so much. So, Michael, you have led Northwell for 21 years, which in and of itself is is an outstanding accomplishment, given that uh, healthcare executives uh, usually have a tenure of five years. So congratulations on that. And during this time, you've seen major social and economic disruptions. But you've described the pandemic as the most overwhelming experience that anyone at Northwell has ever been through. So given that, what were the core principles that help you lead a team of frontline healthcare workers through the fear, through the disruption, the trauma of the pandemic? Uh, well, it, this was a very, very interesting time, as everybody knows, and each one of us has been changed somewhat by what we've done over the last couple of years. And of course, the world has been changed by it. But uh, a couple of core principles uh, that, to me, I think sustained us uh, during that whole time, and I think are important uh, items to be considered as you deal with any kind of a crisis. One is uh, to be perpetually optimistic. <clears throat> Optimism as a value is unbelievably important to not only the public as you communicate, but also employees. 
Uh, you have to project a winning attitude. My view all during, all during the COVID crisis was that at the end of the day, there was going to be one winner, and that was going to be us, not COVID. And I think that con constant upbeat message is important. Uh, the second thing is that you have to have uh, a lot of confidence in your team because this is a team effort. Uh, no leader works alone and no employee works alone. You have to be unified in your message and unified in your operations. And that's the way we behaved all during COVID. A third one for me, which is very important, is leadership visibility. You have to be seen, uh, not just on the TV or not just on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Zoom calls, but you've got to be seen on the floors when you're in a crisis. So our leadership including me, we walked the floors of the facilities all the time so that the people who were doing the hard work could see that there was direct engagement by leadership. That was unbelievably important. I walked every single COVID unit. I met all the staff. And that builds confidence and gets to them to understand that leadership is part of the whole effort. And the, and the other one is communication. Now, obviously, walking around and being visible is part of communication. But you have to constantly, constantly communicate, and you can never overdo it. Uh, so we communicated uh, consistently, not only to the public, but internally as well. And the last one I just mentioned, of course, there are many items to this, but the last one I mentioned is that you have to continually celebrate success. So whenever we had a patient that was getting better, a patient that was leaving the hospital, we had organized celebrations which was not only good for the public, but good for the family, and of course, wonderful for the staff who did the work to make it happen that a person could be dying from COVID one minute and be uh, leaving uh, and going home to their families the next. So those are some core, core principles and, uh, and values. They're things that I kind of live by on an ongoing basis. I'm optimistic by nature. I think that, you know, whatever happens to us um, and all things, bad things continually happen, but it's how you respond to them that matters. And if you respond to them with optimism and, and, and sincerity, uh, that you will at the end of the day deal with this problem successfully, I think it sends an unbelievably positive message, um, both internally and externally. Well, the whole nation was watching you, Michael, uh, at, and the Northwell team as COVID hit, and you played such an important role helping your colleagues throughout the nation as they were then dealing with COVID as it followed coming outside of uh, the New York and Northeast area. And so uh, these principles, uh, you know, clearly were important in Northwell, but they also played a very important role in helping the nation uh, re uh, get through the COVID emergency. And there was one, there was one interview I did where I, I think it was CNN, I, I said that there was going to be no white flag and there was going to be no retreat that is onward and upward uh, until we succeed against this. And uh, that, I think, is a message that uh, is important in any place. And so another key thing that you did at Northwell was emergency preparedness. And you were doing this a decade before COVID hit. I was hoping you could share with us, why did you see uh, this as a priority, uh, an important priority to build towards? And how did it fare? How did you do? How prepared uh, after a decade's efforts were you when COVID hit? 
Well, you know, healthcare is a unique business. I mean, we are in many ways the defense against disease and other health disasters that affect the public. So we're part of a defense mechanism. You could say we're part of national security in many ways. So given the fact that we were located in New York, we were close to uh, three major airports with millions of people moving around all the time, I for a long time believed that we had to be prepared in case something difficult or something bad would happen. You can't ever assume that everything is always going to go along perfectly. I always try to prepare for the inevitable, the inevitability of something difficult occurring. So we started developing an infrastructure on disaster preparedness a year before 9-11. In fact, I held a conference in New York a year before 9-11, and the title of the conference was Weapons of Mass Destruction. I always assumed that whatever happens around the world is going to occur and affect. Here, we're, we're all very integrated. We're a small world. And things like viruses and other things don't need a passport to go from one place to another. It just goes with people. So we started putting a process together before 9-11. Of course, we had to utilize it uh, subsequent to 9-11. And then it became very effective for us during the hurricanes, Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irene. Um, We have a very sophisticated process. We have wonderful leadership that know how to deal with this. We have unbelievably sophisticated protocols and standards. And for COVID, we held our first meeting about the possibility of COVID arriving here uh, in December of 2019. We did not get our first case until March, but we were watching what was going on around the world. We were watching what was going on in China and elsewhere. And to us, we had to believe and assume that it is going to come here at some point. I mean, for those who suggested it, it might not. I didn't think that they were paying attention to the reality out there. So when uh, we got our infrastructure in place and we were very well prepared and very confident, we know what to do in a crisis. We've done it before during the hurricanes, as I said. We became the principal defense during the hurricanes. We worked on behalf of the state. The state relied on us for a lot of their data. When there were difficult circumstances, the state utilized us. And uh, and we had our own lab, our own transportation network. We got uh, uh, the, the, the right staff in place. And I believe very, very strongly, and I've said this to every business, every business should have a disaster preparedness plan. Uh, it should always have a plan for how they can act, and they should model this out. How do you act when things go astray, when things happen that you don't fully anticipate and imagine uh, the bad thing occurring and then figure out how it is you would plan for it? You can't fix It's like you've got to fix the roof when the sun is shining. It's very hard to fix the roof when it's pouring rain. And so the same principle applies here. And that's the attitude that we take at the health system. I always think I, I spend most of my time thinking ahead. What if? What happens if things become very uncomfortable? And how can we be comfortable uh, during an uncomfortable time? So to me, that's an obligation, I think, of every leader in every organization is to have a disaster preparedness plan. And, and, and then, you're, then you can deal with it with confidence. Well, that's such an important lesson. And it's such an important lesson now because we so easily forget and move on uh, to the next crisis or the next uh, news item that's happening. And and uh, so really value that that lesson, Michael, th- and thank you for that. 
Uh, going back to your optimism, you, you've described this time that we're in right now as one of tremendous opportunity uh, to improve the healthcare system. And so what are the, some of the main areas that you're targeting for change in healthcare? What should we be focusing on? What are you focusing on? Well, I, uh, I think in many ways, COVID was a, an, a, an experiment in innovation and creativity. It basically it woke us all up. In fact, you could actually look at it in many ways, despite all of the bad things that occurred and that people who died and got very, very sick, it was a kick in the butt for a lot of us. I mean, it, and not, not just only healthcare. I, it demonstrated our fragility in many ways. You know, before COVID, we were all feeling so strong and so wonderful. All of a sudden, things happen and it just wakes you up. Uh, and I think it is changing and it's changed and it's changing every business. But in healthcare, um, there's a couple of things I, I would just like to mention. Uh, one is, uh, one, of the re- one of the reasons that we were unbelievably, I believe, quite effective during COVID was that the government relaxed a lot of, unnecess- a lot of regulations. Um, it dispensed with a lot of the rules, allowing us to be unbelievably creative and adaptive. That leads to the question as to whether or not some of those rules that were relaxed should ever again be put back in place. Uh, so I do think one of the issues for healthcare and all business is to allow is to, is to be able to get government to learn that there is an appropriate role for regulation, but it has it cannot constrain innovation and creativity. So regulation as an issue needs to be completely evolved and changed, which we're working on. The second thing for healthcare is that we've got to be much more consumer focused. We, we've been patient-focused, and we'll always deal with patients, but patients have traditionally been looked upon as being subservient. Um, to me, uh, patients are customers. And if, as an organization, especially healthcare, if you uh, look upon your purpose as focusing on serving the customer, your whole attitude and perspective changes. Uh, you respond to what the customer needs and wants, not necessarily what you want to deliver, but what the customer needs. Um, we have to be on education and training. We have to, sp- and we're working on this. We have to spend a lot of time rethinking how we educate people for the demands of the next five to 10, 15, 20 years. What are the new skills? What are the new learning modalities? Uh, what are the gaps that were demonstrated in the last couple of years? How do we create the workforce of the future? Um, and then on healthcare, it is not all about hospitals. Uh, at Northwell, we're a very large system, as you mentioned, Laurie, but only 46% of our business is hospital business. Uh, most healthcare is going to be delivered out in the community into ambulatory uh, outpatient facilities. So the idea is, is to bring the care as close as possible to the consumer, where the consumer lives, because it is more productive, it is safer, and, bec- and with the advances of technology and science, we're able to do things today that we couldn't do before by moving care more and more to the communities. For example, if you need orthopedic surgery today, it for the most, for 99% of it, you don't need to go to the hospital at all. So that evolution needs to continue to occur. We've been ahead of this. I have 900 outpatient locations uh, and, and those grow every month. Um, a couple of other things, we need to focus an awful lot more on wellness and prevention. Um, and I take a very, very broad view of health uh, health is impacted by the environment and all of the social determinants issues. We need to be going upstream a lot. We're very good at taking care of people downstream after they get sick, but we don't treat them as well, or we don't 
affect their behavior upstream as much as we should. Uh, and that obviously deals with the issues of accessibility, availability of care, et cetera. And one last point, COVID demonstrated very clearly that it had a disproportionate effect on certain communities, which we're all well aware of. So we now at Northwell are spending an awful lot of time on those communities that were disproportionately affected by COVID, the poorer communities, uh, working with those communities, directly in those communities, providing care. But the provision of healthcare has to be a lot more and has to be done by more than just healthcare, the traditional healthcare providers. Employment opportunity is health. Better education is health. Uh, improving housing is health. So all of us, in many ways, are in the healthcare promotion business. You provide a good job to somebody, you're improving the health of that family. So that is medical care, which is what we spend an awful lot of time doing. But we've got to evolve into looking to at healthcare as being a much broader issue than just the delivery of medical care. Medical care is a subset of health. It's not the equivalent of health. And in many ways, all of us, and I'm sure everybody listening to this, would, would in some way or another agree that what they do uh, is in one way or another improving the health of the community. So we've got to take a much broader definition in the future as this thing from the, na the, na the narrow one that we've had in the past. And so basically we're, we're all in this together, whether it's the business. We're all in this together, yes. Yeah, yeah um, the food business, how we, what kind of food we produce, what kind of food we sell, what we sell in the, in the stores, uh, you, know, you know, how we advertise the kinds of food. You know, you see it happening all the time. You walk into a store, you see all the food you shouldn't be eating displayed beautifully at the beginning of the store. And then I look at that, I'm thinking, if the people who come in, if they eat all of that, they're going to be in a hospital in 12 months um, or in one of our facilities in 12 months, especially kids. So we all bear a responsibility here. Uh, we cannot be saying it's somebody else's issue. Uh, that, to, that kind of a handoff uh, issue, I don't think, is going to be serving us all well in the future. In the future. So you talked about the transformative change in technology and the, and the role that that's playing. I just want to go a little bit deeper into that, you know, particularly with uh, regard to the advances in uh, AI capacity. What role do you think, it, and, and this is under a lot of debate, particularly in the healthcare sector, the role that it should be playing in terms of innovation in healthcare and what guide, guidepost, guide rails should be put around it? Well, I, you know, first, you know, technology has always been a huge part of healthcare delivery. I mean, we're, we're high end technology all the time. All you need to is go to an ICU or an operating room. It is, what is it, a technology hub? Um, I think uh, uh, technology and AI specifically will be a wonderful catalyst for change. I think it's going to be a big, big part of healthcare going forward. There's no way to avoid it. We are very, very intimately involved in it. I think it has wonderful potential to enhance productivity, efficiency. I do a lot of predictive analysis to be able to tell us ahead of time when something is going to happen. Uh, doing all of the data analysis for us because we are dying with data. We, are, we have repositories of data all over the place. AI can help us figure out what it means. What does it say? What can it help us predict? How can we avoid things in the future by doing it today? We've actually at Northwell started a number of AI com uh, companies. Um, the issue for me is that um, we cannot, as we in advance technology, uh, lose sight of the human element. And, you know, you have the human brain, 
which is uh, unbelievably competent for that, for want of a better word. And then you have the machine brain. And the machine brain has the capacity to outstrip the human brain over time. What we have to make sure is that we have a combination of the human brain with the machine brain, uh, so that it's not one or the other. And they become a partner in figuring out how it is we uh, enhance the use of technology emanating from both sources, the human and the and the machine, to enhance care. I, I, you know, we are going to be, you know, intimately involved with this as we go forward. Um, we have to be careful with it, however. I would piece of caution, and this is and this will get corrected, I believe, over time. But there is that you've got to be avoid this tendency to for a doctor, for example, to allow ChatGBT to develop the documentation or the, uh, the, the 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 report on a diagnosis, and then make you've got to make sure as a doctor that you read it, because it can also produce. Uh, wrong information. We've seen experiences of this. So you have to build trust uh, in, in the technology. That is something we have to be careful with, with as we progress, that people just don't say, well, the technology will just do it for me. And I'm so confident in it, I don't have to look at it. That in healthcare would be terribly dangerous. Uh, it will require the human in, in, impact interaction with it until we develop complete trust of what you're getting back is correct, uh, but in answer to your question, it'll be an it'll be an inherent part of the DNA of healthcare delivery going forward. No way to avoid it, and I think it will make us all better as long as we learn how to use it, learn how to use it properly. Yeah, and part of that is making sure that we um, are developing the future workforce, uh, which you pay a lot of attention to uh, with sure. the, with the right skills. Uh, and and also, uh, you know, helping to deal with the labor shortages, making sure we're developing the right the right uh, uh, skills in the future workforce. So, turning to that, could you share with us? You've been very proactive on uh, education and on an education at Northwell, uh, both at Northwell itself in terms of higher education, and then also in terms of uh, your involvement with the K through twelve schools. Yeah, share some of your uh, insights. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm, I'm addicted to education. I'm addicted to creating a culture of continuous learning um, in the way the world is constantly changing and adapting. You know, you've got to be upgrading your skills all the time. Uh, education is so, so important. And that is why, for example, we have created a very unique medical school uh, that has a unique curriculum, very different than the curricula, curriculum of most medical schools. Uh, we have a uh, you know, graduate nursing school, undergraduate nursing school, um, physician assistant school. We have an in-house corporate university, um, a, a, a corporate uh, university type program where we do training and education for all of the employees. We are upgrading all of those uh, going forward, developing all new training modalities, again, using technology. AI, AI is unbelievably important here also. Uh, we can utilize that to dramatically expand our ability to, to teach and, edu and educate and do it very differently in the future than we did in the past because also the, the requirements of the younger population and, the, and their demands and their needs are very different than when I, I grew up. Uh, so, but we're also, as you mentioned, very, very involved in the, in the community. We are now working this year with about 100,000 kids 
Uh, we've worked in with dozens of high schools. Uh, we provide internships, apprenticeship programs. I, by the way, am a huge fan of internships and apprenticeships. If you want to have, if you want to explain how things work, you got to experience it. Working on the job is important. Bring a kid out of high school, bringing them into the hospital, showing them what goes on, giving them an internship program, which we do by the hundred, is extraordinarily important. That's how you create the workforce of the future. Uh, we've adopted a, a number of schools, including a number in the city. Uh, I gave the, uh, the commencement address at a high school just about a month and a half ago, uh, high, minority high school in Queens, uh, 650 graduates. We've provided hundreds of, of internships for them. We also have a scholarship program. So we mentor kids. Uh, if the kids have a hard time getting through college, we help pay the tuition. That's how we grow the workforce of the future. I hear an awful lot about people talking about the, the, the labor shortage. Well, yeah, uh, that is true, but it is our job to fill the gap, to create the future workforce, not to sit around whiting about why it exists, but uh, involve yourself in making sure that you work with the younger generation, with all of the schools, to get, to get them into your business, get them into the healthcare business, explain to them how important it is, show them the variety of opportunities. I mean, we're a candy store of opportunities. Almost anything you would ever want to engage in, we can, we're involved with. Uh, we do 10, 10 million meals a year of food services run by Mission of Star Chefs. You want to be in the food business. We're in the food business. Um, so, um, uh, I, we're, we're involved in so multitude of ways. In our medical school, we had a pipeline program where we got kids from poor families to work with us. All the kids that have got involved with us years ago have all graduated college. Ten of those kids that came from families that didn't think they had any possibility of moving into the healthcare field, ten of those kids are now physicians. Wow, wow. And two of them are now working in our healthcare system. I was with there not long ago at a second year physician in our second year as a full practicing physician in our organization in OBGYN. She was a kid we knew years ago in a high school that didn't seem to have much possibility. Now she's a doctor. Our job is to, is to stop whining about the, the gap, but fill it. Uh, it's That's our responsibility and not wait and hopefully hope that somebody else does. Yeah, that's really impressive. And yeah, one area in particular that you've really played a leadership role uh, is on on gun violence, and you've you've talked about how gun violence really is a public health issue. Uh, share with us why you're so passionate uh, about trying to encourage other leaders, business leaders, healthcare leaders, to focus on this issue. Well, it's a disastrous situation that you, you know we see it every day. We hear about it. We can't, we we're so immune to. Uh, and so used to mass shootings today, we don't even talk about it anymore, even though they happen almost every other day. The reason it's a public health issue, uh, we see the effects of it all the time in our facilities, but the statistic that I like to mention, that people get shocked at, that guns are the leading cause of death for kids, for adolescents and kids. The second leading cause of death are automobile accidents, and the third leading cause of death is cancer. Now, if I were to say to you, you know, cancer is a big issue for kids. It's say, oh yeah, cancer is a huge issue, but it's not the leading cause of that. The leading cause of that is guns. So it's a health issue. 
uh, it affects the families on both sides of the equation, both the, the, the family of the shooter and the family of the people shot. Uh, we see the injuries, we see the effect on the community. Um, uh, so I've been very, very involved. I've been criticized for it, but uh, people say to me, stay in your lane. My view, this is my lane. This is our responsibility. I now have 55 healthcare system CEOs of the largest systems in the country, from Texas to Vermont, from California to New York, have all now signed on to work as a collective, as part of a CEO council, uh, to, enhance, to enhance awareness and, uh, and, and uh, education about gun violence. We're saying, I'm staying away, and we're staying away from the Second Amendment. Uh, this is about education. Simple things, like if you have a gun at home, uh, lock it up. Uh, don't leave it. Don't leave it available for kids to take advantage of. Uh, provide education in the schools, which we're doing. Uh, this, to me, is um, uh, this. This is something. This is not what the United States should be known for, or be recognized for, or be distinctive for. Is the degree of gun violence, and I understand all the politics and how difficult this can be. But I still believe that. You know, only good things happen when when good people with the rights with the right motivation stand up and talk about certain things. And I am delighted that a lot of the healthcare leaders around the country have decided to engage with us on this. And uh, we're I'm working with them. We may very well do a national. We will be doing a national campaign on gun violence prevention and safety uh, on behalf of all of these CEOs. Uh, and I know that other CEOs from non-healthcare organizations that have taken us taking a stand on this and I applaud them for doing so. Uh, this is a this is a public safety issue, a public health issue, and um, not something the United States should be known for. Well, uh, as part of the tri-state area, I've seen your public Northwest public service announcements about locking up your guns and gun safety. They're very clever and very effective. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Or what everything you're doing on that, and it's a long-term effort, Lori. I mean, I, one last thing I mentioned: people said to me, "Well, you know, it take a long, long time." And I remind people that Ralph Nader took a long time to get seat belts and uh, and airbags in cars, when everybody thought that there was no way this would ever happen. But look, things change over time. You got to be persistent and hang in there. Yeah, yeah. So, final question is leadership role models. And what advice you have for the next generation of leaders? Who's played the most important uh, role in your life in terms of shaping your values? Well, I grew up uh, in a somewhat of a difficult environment. Uh, I grew up uh, in some severe poverty. Uh, I know what it's like to have hard times. Um, the, the person that, to me, had the greatest influence on me was my mother. She was just an absolutely unbelievable strong person who was completely deaf, who would never admit that she had a disability. Despite the difficult circumstance that she lived in, she was always unbelievable, perpetually optimistic. She always uh, taught this following lesson, you know, never let your current circumstance limit your future potential. Um, she was an avid reader, loved to read. Um, so she was very important. And you know, I've, I've been very, very fortunate over the years to be able to work with great people. I mean, I spent 12 years with uh, uh, Governor Mario Cuomo. Uh, he was an exceptional person to work with, uh, despite the polit your politics. He was such a great person to be around. Uh, you, could, you, you had to be your best if you were with him. 
He gave me a wonderful opportunity. He threw me into the fire. I worked for a small short period of the time with Vernon Jordan. Was, uh, everybody knew Vernon. Uh, I was a young kid way back uh, after coming to the United States. I spent some time working with him and just to watch him behave. So in many ways, you're influenced by everybody you meet. In many ways, we're the constellation of the impacts of everybody you come in contact with. We learn from everybody. We learn from each other all the time. Uh, on your question about future leaders of the future, I would say, and this is, I, as, I know, as you know, Laurie, I meet with all new employees that are hired in the health system. We have 250 to 300 people a week. I meet all employees, every single one in a group setting. And my message to them is that, um, you know, everything is possible. And leadership uh, is about, you know, there's a definition of leadership that I like, which is you manage the present, you selectively forget the past, but more importantly, you help create the future. It requires courage. I would say that leaders today need courage. We're in a we're in a uh, you know a toxic political environment, um, and despite your politics, uh, we need to move to a better place. That's going to take courage by leaders. Uh, and we're in a global world, but no longer just a national world. We've got to be very cognizant of what's happening globally. So I would say, you know, it's an exciting place to be. You want to make a difference? You got to ask yourself the question, you know, what, what motivates you? Is it is it titles? Is it money? Is it position? Is it power? Or are you motivate, motivated by making a, a positive difference in the community that you're part of? If it's the latter, and, and you're committed to it and you're, you're passionate about it, um, that to me will make you a good leader. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for the privilege of honoring you and the Northwell team in October. Uh, it really will be our privilege to see you all then. Uh, and thank you for allowing us to learn from you and, and for these insights that are very, very helpful as we're all trying to deal with the major crises and challenges uh, that this world seems to be throwing at us today. So thank every, you. Every challenge is, is, I don't use the word challenge much. I, every challenge is an opportunity. So it's all about opportunity. Take advantage of the opportunity and um, every challenge, you go under it, over it, round it or through it, but it's an opportunity to do something better. You have been listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board.